Hello and welcome to Coastal Connections, the road to the Isles. The podcast exploring the timelessly alluring appeal of the West Highlands of Scotland. I'm Neil Robertson, a travel writer living in Loch Arbor. And I'm the producer, Freya. We've been on the roads, the rails and the waters of Loch Arbor to meet some absolutely wonderful people and animals. And whether you're a local like Neil or a very lucky visitor like me, it's an area that just never fails to take your breath away. And we hope we'll inspire you to come here in the way that we really think suits it best. That's slowly, gently and ready to make connections. Well, this is the last episode in this series and today we're hitting the big town. Well, kind of, because we've reached the bustling but very charming destination of Malig. Neil, for the last time, could you do the honours and give us your insider's knowledge? Certainly can. Malig is the, the main coastal hub of Loch Arbor. It's the end of the road to the Isles from Fort William. But similarly to much larger Oban and Argyll further south, it's also a springboard to, to wider adventures on the coast. You can jump on ferries to the northern Noidat Peninsula, the small Isles and the Outer Hebrides even, out west, and of course the ever-popular Isle of Skye. Traditionally, it is of course a fishing port, but it's a relatively new one, and it only really came into being in the 19th century. Nowadays, it's fueled by tourism, largely, with a, a busy bustle in the summer months as folk pile off the trains in search of the nearby beaches, the hill walks, the boat trips, and of course, more of that famous seafood. That seafood that I was only too happy to enjoy while I was staying in Malig for a couple of days. And we begin our episode in the same place that so many visitors begin their holidays here, on the platform at Malig Station. And this is the end of the line of what has to be one of the most stunning train journeys really in the whole of the UK. Oh, no doubt at all. And it's only about 150 miles between Glasgow and Malig. But like most of the things in the Highlands... It's not a quick journey and it's all the better for it. There's plenty of opportunities to enjoy the changing landscapes as you pass through the so-called rough bounds. That's miles of rocky, hilly and hard to navigate terrain. You'll find all the romance of the Highlands, the mythical appeal. And as you meander further north, expect wild, moody moorland, loitering birds of prey and of course, those curious red deer. You're right, Neil. You paint a really lovely picture of that journey, which I've done a few times now, thanks to this podcast. I've driven the road as well, but I really do love the train journey. There's something special about it with your cup of train tea and your tonics caramel wafer. It's really nice to feel that slow change as you pull out of Glasgow. You pass through Helensborough. Things look quite familiar, green and lush. And then you do feel like you go on a bit of a change as you pass through this wild landscape. Your ears start to pop, you get through the moorland, and by the time you arrive in Malig, you really feel like you've arrived on the edge of something, whether you're going off to explore the coast or push further out to the small isles and beyond. Yes, definitely. It's, it's an end, but it's also very much a beginning. And that energy and anticipation, I've always thought, is a, is a fun thing to immerse yourself in. And as a local resident now, I've observed how Mali can be almost eerily quiet in the winter when you feel a bit like you're in your own wee world. And then it's a proper hive in the summer when the world comes to you. It's, you find yourself surrounded by exotic accents in the supermarket queue for your bottle of milk and <laughs> parking suddenly becomes out of the question. Local businesses throw open their doors again. It's really quite something, the transformation. But right next to the station, on the site of the old railway dormitory, is the Malig Heritage Centre. And it tells the story of Malig and its rich history, all the ups and downs of how people here made their living. 
And that's where we met up with Malcolm Poole. His connection with the, the Malik Heritage Centre goes right back to its opening in 1994. And you can't really talk about the history or the fortunes of Malig without talking about fishing, as you just mentioned, Neil. So we walked down to the railway platform and we started by asking Malcolm about Malig's most valuable natural asset. The advantage of Malig was that it was closer to the, the big herring lochs, uh, Loch Nevis and Loch Huron, to the north of us here, where there'd been a, a busy seasonal herring fishery for couple of centuries before that. So herring was the big one then, it was the big fish to catch? Yes, herring used to come inshore in incredible numbers. There are tales of it, of herring being caught at the head of Loch Huron. There's a, a neck, a, kind of like a natural fish trap, and there's stories of shoals of herring when the tide went out being caught in there and just the, the shore being covered in herring. I'm sure that was probably infrequent or a one-off, but it seems to be a, a genuine and uh, reliable account. So the railways were very important for bringing people in and fish out. What kind of time, time in history are we talking about here when the railway was built? The railway was built from Fort William to Malig. They started building in 1897. Uh, it took four years. They opened it the 1st of uh, April Fool's Day on uh, 1901. The idea wasn't really people, although they, they did have plans for tourism. They produced a tourist guide to the railway to coincide with the opening of the railway. But uh, the main reason for building the railway was to tap the herring fishing and take it south. Malig wasn't seen as a destination. Mm-hmm. It was a source of herring uh, in, the, in the first reason. But just purely by coincidence, the opening of the railway coincided with... Uh, it meant, made possible a through route from Glasgow to Stornoway. The busiest time of day was around now, actually, around midday, when the, you'd get the steamers coming in from Stornoway and trains come from the from Glasgow into Malig and they'd exchange traffic, passengers going from one to the other and freight being craned off the steamers, bales of Harris Tweed, for example, and boxes of Stornoway kippers, things like that, craned off the steamers and into the trains, and the river provisions from and other supplies come from the south to go out to the islands. And then uh, the steamer would head off to Stornoway again, train would head south, and the uh, calm would uh, <laughs> return. <laughs> So I've heard about this Lord Lovett character. What can you tell me about him? The Lovett family owned North Motor, a narrow neck of land between Loch Motor and Loch Nevis, up until uh, 1994. That would be a little over 200 years they owned it. However, it's a bit of a historical accident that they owned it because their hereditary lands were north of Inverness, around Bewley. An earlier chapter of history that isn't spoken about quite so much these days was the connections with the Jacobite Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And the Lovetts were great supporters, or, or Lord Lovett of the time was a great supporter of Prince Charlie. 
and uh, was actually the last peer, member of the, the aristocracy, to be executed for treason right. in Britain. There's more that can be said about, said about that. But anyway, <laughs> however, because of that, the family got their lands confiscated after the uh, failure of the 1745 rebellion. And his successor as Lord Lovett was very ardent supporter of the government. He, he was a general in the British Army, but of course he didn't have any lands. And the MacDonnells of Glengarry owned Northmore at the time and they were already in financial straits and selling off land. And it was bought apparently very expensively by General uh, Lovett. And for a while, until the Lovett family had their lands restored, North Mora was the only land which they held. So that's how the Lovetts came to own North Mora. At the beginning of the 19th century, the Lord Lovett was a miner, and he didn't become of age until around 1830, when he started trying to make measures to improve the way the lands were run and he seems to have taken a particular interest in North Motor. But Lord Lovett's idea was to reduce the dependence on agriculture and to encourage fishing. He laid out crofts. Up to this point, most agriculture was done under the run rig system where uh, it was sort of communal. But in the 1830s, Lord Lovett laid out crofts so that each family would have their own plot of land, not very large ones, probably four or five acres maximum, and uh, encouraged a number of people to, to move to uh, Malig. Obviously, the drawback to that was market. People could salt herring for their own use and, for, and to sell to people living further in, inland, but the nature of the landscape here is there aren't many <laughs> many people living further inland and otherwise as a market you're dependent on uh, steamers passing uh, maybe weekly or so a few times a month heading to to the Clyde and uh, to say Malik prospered would probably be an exaggeration but during the 19th century but it, it maintained its population and grew marginally but it was still uh, an isolated settlement. There is no road to speak of. The main way in and out was by sea. From Arisig, which is what, say, seven, eight miles south of us, there was a three times weekly uh, mail coach to Fort William. But the roads were very poor and there were very few wheeled vehicles, as far as I can make out, till we get into the 20th century. Yes, yeah. and we take that for granted now with the, with the fancy new roads, and that has been a complete game changer for for tourism, especially for Malik, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Even the road that comes into Malik beside the railway here only dates from 1988, and before that, the the way in and out was up the old road uh, that passes in front of the West Highland Hotel, which was quite a, a task with a, a loaded uh, fish lorry, for example. We're standing on the station platform here and you can see the end of the track there. But until the uh, 1968, 
the two tracks here continued down onto the harbour. So we could maybe walk down to where the end of the, tr the line used to be and look at the harbour from there. Yes, let's do that. Great idea. Left or right? Oh, we'll go straight across and down there, I think. So we're now on the uh, ferry pier and behind us they're loading cars onto the ferry to Sky. This is more or less exactly where the tracks used to end coming from Glasgow. There's still some fishing boats down here on the other side of the uh, pier. We're standing exactly where the steamers used to moor and unload into the railway wagons. The pier we're standing on is concrete and uh, was built as concrete from the very beginning. But as we're looking east across the harbour, we can see the other pier, what was known as the, the fish pier, which uh, was originally built piecemeal from about 1905 onwards, a bit at a time, constructed out of timber and it gradually uh, extended until about 1930 to have more or less the shape that you can see today. In those days, of course, the harbour was packed with fishing boats, not all local ones. Uh, and you could easily, you know, you could walk across from this pier to the other pier or over the, the boats because they were packed in there. Nowadays, we can look over there and see the marina it's low tide so we can only see the tops of the masts <laughs> but that's a new development of the for the 21st century because you're speaking to the uh, harbour master who uh, was in charge during the 70s and 80s yachts were not really welcome <laughs> in Malig yachts and fishing fleets do not mix well and uh, they were a bit of a headache but nowadays uh, there's lots of room in the harbour and uh, the marinas is very popular and uh, there are a lot of yachts visiting the harbour today it must always be like a, like a traffic light system or something when you've got the, the big Calmac ferry with everyone piling onto that. The marina, as you see, with all the, the fancy yachts and then all the fishing industry fleet. Is it not well, quite congested? Well, we, we do have a traffic light. Uh, I think we're standing beside one now, actually. Ah. There are two lights There's uh, that shine red. This one, this pole beside us here and another more, much more visible one on the end of the... the breakwater there and that lights red when uh, one of the ferries is coming into or leaving harbour and at that point no other vessels are supposed to attempt to uh, enter or leave harbour. Occasionally uh, somebody make, doesn't notice this and you hear a blast on the horn from the, the ferry telling them to go back to their place. Yeah. It is a really vibrant mix here actually, isn't it? Because it's got the, for tourists, it's got that beautiful picturesque thing. But it is a nice mix of working, leisure, tourism. People just living their lives here as well. Yes, the harbour is still very important uh, source of employment. People working on, not just people for fishermen, but the boat builders here is still very important. Uh, employs a lot of people doing repairs to the boats. Not just Malig boats, but this Malig sticks out to the west, so it's the easiest place to come to from pretty well any of the Western Isles for boat repairs. Added to which that you got transport from where we're standing here we can see three work boats which transport goods out to the islands or to fish farm that's 
in the outer harbour here to our right, the, beyond the car ferry. Today, there's no sign of any vessels with the Norwegian flag, but normally there's, usually you can see uh, at least one vessel in, the, in there, either loading uh, massive great white bulk bags of, of feed for fish farms, or the other vessels are loaded with salmon and, uh, and that have been harvested from the fish farms and are brought into Malig to, for a transfer onwards to, to Fort William for processing. So as a transport hub, it's very important. There's the ferry heading out. And just before he went, we asked Malcolm to tell us that extra story that he mentioned about Lord Lovett and his sticky end as part of the Jacobite Rebellion. Oh, uh, well, no, it's, uh, it's there's, there's lots of little side bits. The, 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 the way he was caught was one thing as well, because there are islands on Loch Morer, and the Jacobites had managed to acquire all the boats, all the small boats, and they'd take them to the islands. So they thought they were safe on the islands. That uh, There was a government, a government ship sailed into the Morer River and landed forces to, to capture them. According to the tale, the Jacobites were on the island and there were government soldiers on the Wallach edge and they were shouting insults over at the government soldiers. But of course, all they did was basically took the, the boats from the ship and portaged them up and onto the loch and started rowing across to the island. And there were some quite important people, notables there, including Lord Lovett. All those that could, they then got into the boats and started rowing up Loch Morder taking Lord Lovett with them. He was a very elderly gentleman and very gouty and he couldn't do much himself. So when they eventually left the boats, I think they were carrying him on a mattress for some distance and they eventually left him and he was caught, found halfway up Loch Mora on this mattress and captured. And then, of course, he was transported south to London for trial, found guilty of treason. But the story of his execution, apparently, I've been told, is the origin of the expression to die laughing. Because uh, executions were a spectacle in those days. You had viewing galleries erected and things like that. And apparently one of these viewing galleries collapsed and three people in it were killed, which struck Lord Lovett as hilarious. <laughs> And uh, that apparently is the story of how Lord Lovett died laughing, <laughs> La laughed his head off. He was beheaded, well, uh, yes, yes he was beheaded, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Malcolm, thank you very, very much for your time and for explaining the fantastic story of Malig. Ah, you're very welcome. I just hope nobody finds too many inaccuracies in it. <laughs> What a great story. See, and I think this is important, Scots can famously be a bit on the reserve side, and these stories don't always come and find you. You might have to go and find them. They're the kind of ones that you can miss if you don't take that little bit of extra time. Mm -hmm. Ask questions, poke around a bit, because there's some legendary tales out there. Oh, there certainly are. I've learned so much from making this series with you that I just wouldn't have known if I'd been doing my usual wandering about looking for birds and animals. 
And Neil, I know you love your history and I definitely understand why. You've inspired me to learn more about Scotland's history and I promise I'll at least try to stop bugging you in the car with history questions. Well, it's been very much a learning experience for me too, all of this. So big thanks to Malcolm for his insight. And I'd also like to say a big thank you to Sheena and her family and the team at the West Highland Hotel for putting me up. I'd passed through Maleg before on my way out to the Small Isles and it was a real treat to actually stop, spend a few days there, sample the amazing bakery and feel such a warm welcome. I feel like I saw a different side to the place. Aye, we'd, we'd never get Sheena on, on the podcast, unfortunately. I did try, but she's uh, discreetly a fantastic ambassador for the area and such a specialist in that warm Scottish welcome that's so famous. But the Heritage Centre is right next to Malig train station and it's well worth a visit if you want to sharpen up your history while you wait for the train back to Glasgow. There's also lots of info about what you can do in Malig and the surrounding area on roadtothehills.com. Now, it can be a very busy wee corner of Scotland in the summer months, so in these over-tourism sensitive days that we've got at the moment, we always remind folk to tread gently, leave no trace of your visit, and contribute when you can to the local economy. This is what ultimately helps keep these local communities and their economies alive. And with that, we have reached almost the end of this podcast series. Thank you so much for joining us on our journey around Loch Aber. And I have to say, we have not been there in the summer months. The weather has been really nice and there's been absolutely no midges. So I hope we've made a good case for coming. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could like, subscribe and share it with your friends. Until next time, bye for now. Do keep an eye out for our next joint around Scotland because we will be back. And in the meantime, wherever you are, safe travels. Slanger. Coastal Connections, Road to the Isles is produced by Freya Hellier. Many thanks also to Les Back for the additional music and to the podcast sponsor, Highlands and Islands Enterprise. <laughs>